Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 9. Last week, I began the deep dive into the history of the book of Judges by covering one of the source texts, in that case, the Aleppo Codex, which is the oldest complete surviving copy of the book. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm concentrating more fully on the book of Judges itself. And with that, let's get started. Judges immediately follows the book of Joshua, opening with a reference to Joshua's death. His death is seen as the dividing line between the period of the conquest, which is followed by the settling and occupation of the land formerly known as Canaan. In the beginning, the Israelites meet, likely at the sanctuary at Gilgal or Shechem, and ask God who should be first, meaning in time, not in rank or preference, but first to secure the land they are to occupy. In the background of this, and just before the time of the judges, the land was distributed to the different tribes of Israel. Within each region, so therefore each tribe, was affected differently by the enemy at their gates and walls. Enemies such as the Mesopotamians, Canaanites, Ammonites, and the Philistines. In the book of Judges, a phrase is repeated numerous times, one I've pointed out in an anticipation of this part. That phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, sometimes followed by the notation that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, perhaps pointing to no central figure administering justice. Besides explicitly noting that there was no king, it also implies that at a future date, there would be a king. Of course, we know that did come to pass. Embedded in that implication is another implication, and that's that in the future, the book itself would be edited. In the closing chapters of the book, along with being sprinkled throughout, the tribe of Judah is given a more prominent role than the other tribes. This is seen in the first chapter of the book, where we're told that Judah, which would later establish the southern kingdom of Judah, took the initiative and was most successful in conquering lands from the Canaanites. In this part of the text, the success of Judah is set against the failures of the other tribes, especially those tribes who later formed the northern kingdom of Israel. These tribes would experience several failures, with the Canaanites repelling Israelite attacks on their cities. Compared to the other tribes, the Judeans, Judahites, your pick on the noun. Anyway, they are portrayed as supremely capable conquerors, and even where Judah fails, an excuse is given, like when the enemy had iron chariots. Do note that many biblical critics see the list of conquered peoples and excuses as biased, maybe even deliberate propaganda, by an author hailing from the kingdom of Judah or trying to keep his boss happy. I'll explore this at a moderate depth in the near future. For now, just know that there are other parts of the book that paint Judah in a less than positive light. And the theories about this distinction are as numerous as the theorizers. This is also thought to indicate the complimation and editing of judges occurred when that tribe, meaning Judah, was in the seat of power. In modern academic circles, so in this case in the 20th and 21st centuries, 
most biblical scholars align with the German scholar Martin Noth's proposal that the books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, the Samuels, and the Kings form parts of a single work. For that to be true, they would all have to have been produced at a much later time, obviously after all of the events recorded in them had actually happened. What's also embedded in this is that a single complete work wasn't made up from whole cloth, but was instead derived from multiple older sources, sources that have yet to be uncovered and may never be. Noth theorized that the history found in these books was written during the early Babylonian exile, likely in the 6th century BC. Part of his theory was based on how the history after conquering, then settling in Canaan, was foretold by Moses, then Joshua. You know how it went. Stay true. Forsake the Canaanite deities. Kill everyone. Don't intermingle. And they didn't do this. So, the curses foretold by the previous pair of leaders came to pass, too. Noth relied on his pre-told, then post-settling accurate prediction to put a stake in the ground on when the books were written, long after all of that had come to pass. And the usual, but not very recent, disclaimer applies. Not my theory. His. But just be aware of it in case it ever pops up in conversation. Much of this foretelling was done in the book of Deuteronomy. It's for this reason the history of these books is frequently referred to as the Deuteronomistic history, or from a Deuteronomistic source, or sometimes more succinctly named as the Deuteronomist. Noth proposed that this history was the work of a single author, the Deuteronomist, who lived in the mid-6th century BC. This unknown writer would select edit, then compose from his various sources to produce a coherent, flowing, timeline-oriented work. There's something else to this. Some sources, like the story of Samson, were far more complete, while others were very much lacking, like the couple of sentences about the judge Tola. A later researcher, an American language professor at Harvard University, Frank Moore Cross, proposed that an early version of the history was compiled in Jerusalem in Josiah's time, so around the late 7th century BC, and then this writing was expanded on by the Deuteronomist, essentially forming a second edition work. Either the first writer or the second was positioned as the author of the constant cyclical nature of judges, the cycle I've covered frequently in this chapter of the podcast. Idolatry, punishment by being ruled by foreign powers, crying out, a delivering judge is sent, followed by peace in the land, all to be lost by slipping back to idolatry. But everything this writer put in wasn't all bad. It's also been proposed that the dark humor found in Judges 12 about the different pronunciations of the word sibboleth are the thoughts of this writer working in the exile period. Which gets to another question that Noth's theory raises. Actually, the question is a bit outside of Noth, and it has been around much longer. Regardless of who compiled or even wrote the assemblage of judges, what were their source documents? Most likely, it was both written in oral tradition of a collection of loosely connected stories about tribal heroes who saved the people in battle. 
Researchers have dubbed this collection of stories as the Book of Saviors, since most of the people listed saved Israel are various tribes from their enemies. Some of these, specifically the stories of Ehud, Yael, and parts of Gideon, had already been expanded on and possibly transformed into what's known as the Wars of Yahweh, before possibly being given a final Deuteronomistic version. By the 20th century, the first part of the prologue, so all of chapter 1 and the first handful of verses of 2, along with two parts of the epilogue, so chapters 17 through 21, were frequently viewed by researchers as miscellaneous collections of fragments attached to the main text. In addition to this, the prevailing thought was that the second part of the prologue, found in the balance of chapter 2 and the beginning of 3, were a specifically constructed introduction to the book, essentially attempting to bridge the gap period between the conquest and where the stories of rescue begin. That theory held up for a little while, at least until recently. Now the pendulum has swung yet again, back to the view that the entire book is the work of a single writer who assembled the various stories into a single, somewhat linear, relatively consistent work. This writer carefully selected, reworked, then positioned his source material to introduce and conclude the evolving themes. If you don't like that version of how it came together, just wait a bit. It'll swing back. There were other themes introduced in the book, in addition to the sin, then redemption, then yet again sin cycle. Object lessons, such as what's known as the sovereign freedom of Yahweh, meaning that God does not always do what is expected of him. Also, the satirization of foreign kings, who consistently underestimate Israel and God. The idea of a flawed agent, which just means that the particular judge does not seem adequately prepared for the task they're about to encounter. And likely the most obvious sub-theme, the general disunity among the various tribes, as seen most pointedly in the last story where everyone attacked Benjamin, which is one of the many reasons why this last theme, strife between the tribes, seemed to build as time passed. Also particularly noteworthy are what's not in the book. First on that list is the Ark of the Covenant. It was particularly prominent in the stories of Moses and Joshua. Now it seems to have been placed in storage. Along these same lines, there's no mention of a central place of worship, and very little about the high priest. There's little to no mention of cooperation among the various tribes, except when everyone attacked Benjamin. But, then again, I'm not sure that a short civil war should be labeled as cooperation. There's something else along these same lines, too. While the theory of its conflammation is usually timed several centuries after the uniting of the kingdom under Saul, then David, the book has several passages that are decidedly anti-king. Where is this? in the stories of how all the judges rose to power. This is parallel to the central theme of God's sovereignty and the importance of being loyal to him, along with his laws above all other gods and sovereigns. Where does the power of the various judges come from? 
not through the traditional route of a prominent dynasty, handing it down to the eldest son, nor through elections. Of course not elections. Democracies and republics were far, far off in the future. Instead, the upstart judge, the deliverer, was appointed by God himself. This goes against most of the thoughts around a centralized monarchy, though those tend to also think they are ruling at the bequest, and even sometimes as the agent of God. Perhaps a bit too theological, but with traditional monarchies, those lines are frequently blurred. This anti-monarchist theology is most visible towards the end of the Gideon narrative, where the Israelites beg Gideon to create a dynastic monarchy over them, and Gideon refuses. But the story wasn't done. For the rest of Gideon's life, there was peace in the land, a peace that wasn't to last. Instead, not long after his burial, his son Abimelech ruled Shechem as a tyrant, rather Machiavellian-like, if I can jump ahead in history a bit. He was responsible for so much death and destruction. Then again, he wasn't a judge, and more of a cautionary tale against centralized rule and therefore monarchies. There were true judges, think Samson, Micah, and Jibea, that were equally as violent. But then again, this violence was pointed at the enemies of the decentralized Israelites, not at their own people. Another thing that stands out about the book is the number of significant female characters, including the judge Deborah, who is considered by some to be the Bible's greatest woman, a position brought on exclusively by her own merits. In fact, the only thing we know about her private life is the name of her husband, Lapidot. Outside of the book, most prominent women are brought into that role because they were married to a great man, or otherwise related to him, sometimes active, other times passive, but rarely alone. The main text gives the account of six major judges and describes in varying levels of detail their struggles against the oppressive kings of surrounding nations. Embedded in this is the story of the previously mentioned Abimelech, who was not a judge, but simply a tyrant of a leader. The cyclical pattern first seen in the prologue is readily apparent at the beginning, but as the stories progress, this cycle begins to fall apart, probably reflecting the general disintegration of the spear of the Israelites as a single group. While the judges covered in depth are generally classified as major judges, some think of the judges who little is known about to not be just less well-known, but also less powerful with some referred to not as a judge, but as an adjudicator. This stems from the narrative where the major judges aren't judging people, but instead are fierce leaders, and the minor ones held a role we more closely associate with rendering judgment. In fact, the only major judge mentioned as making legal judgments was Deborah. So she was the only judge in the book who was both a great leader and a true judge. Add that to her resume. Also, note that there are some scholars who consider many of the stories to not be presented in chronological order. This, too, isn't surprising, as with many, 
Very little is mentioned concerning external events which frequently can serve as an approximate timestamp on when this judge or that did this or that. There are also things that happened towards the end of the book that likely took place shortly after Joshua's death. These include certain characters like Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, alongside particular idioms. Though these problems haven't stopped some researchers from attempting to put together a rough timeline of the events. The judges were spread out in different tribal areas of Israel. They judged at different times, though some overlap is implied, such as between Eli and Samson. Othniel is considered by some to be the first judge, and is thought to have been walking in the area sometime in the 14th century BC. The period of judges would wrap up with Samuel, likely around 1050 BC, so three to four hundred years of a rather loose confederacy. During this period, the Israelites were in seemingly constant conflict with the Canaanites, whose kingdom is thought to have peaked in the 14th century BC. References to Baal point in the direction of the Canaanites. Next, well, really in parallel, were the Hittites, who were thorns in the flesh from about 1800 to 1200 BC. Remember, the Hittites were the ones with the formidable iron chariots. All of this progressing until the end of the book when things have really gone off the rails. As it wraps, God treasures are used to make idolatrous images. The priestly Levites have been corrupted. The tribe of Dan gives up on claiming their territory from the native Canaanites and instead ventures well north, conquering a remote village. And the Israelites are fighting each other, nearly exterminating the Benjaminites in the process. In fact, these last two stories about the Danites and Benjaminites do not even include a deliverer, a judge. As if that wasn't enough, the names of the tribes in the first chapter of Judges include two we haven't seen before, the Kenites and Caleb. All of this simply leads to a bunch of head-shaking and scratching, most of which I'll try to sort out in this chapter of the podcast which gives me a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the history found in the book of Judges. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.